0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good, morning. Good morning. And we want to especially wish all the mothers a happy Mother's Day weekend this weekend. And before I have prayer, I just want to mention one prayer request I would put out to the class in our online class. I finished uh, a manuscript for my next book called The God-Shaped Heart, The Transforming Power of Love. And it will have elements that you have seen in the... Um, got on your church or the from fear to friendship DVD set as well as expanding more on that and we've uh, my my book agent has it he submitted it to several publishers one publisher has come back and loved the themes thinks it's well written but is uncomfortable with the the direct challenge to penal theology that uh, we take on in this book and show a, a different view. And so uh, we want it to go to a publisher who will be able to stand up against the criticism that in the backlash that will come. So if you will pray that God will help us get that into the right publisher. Appreciate that. All right. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come and study today. We thank you for the beautiful weather we're having, for your love, for your grace. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, that we can have greater discernment and understanding of, of your nature, your character, how your kingdom runs, and that we can be effective agents for you to present your true kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title this week is Peter and the Rock. And if you look at the second paragraph in the Sabbath lesson, it states, The New Testament is clear. Jesus had to die. As he faced the looming shadow of the cross, Jesus prayed, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. This was the divine plan conceived within the mind of God even before time began. And it asks us to read Titus 1.2. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, and so I'm going to read those to you. It says, of faith and knowledge resting in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And then 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 10, through 10, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As you hear this idea, this reference, um, before the beginning of time, Do you conceive of this being before God created anything in his entire universe, or before God created earth? God created earth. Yeah, this is out of um, Education, page 304. Notice how this phrase is used before the beginning of time. It says, uh, "...then will be opened before him the course of the great conflict that had its birth before time began, and that ends only when time shall cease." Well, that's an interesting thing. The, the history of the inception of sin, of a fa- a fatal falsehood in its crooked working, of truth that, swerving not from its own straight lines, has met and conquered error. All will be made manifest. That author is referring to a problem that began before time began and will end when time ends. Isn't that Interesting. Well, here's the King James version of 2 Timothy 1, nine. 2 Timothy 1, nine, King James version. And we just read it up there out of the NIV and it says, um, before the beginning of time in the NIV. Here's what it says in the King James. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. So the King James says before the world began and the NIV says before the beginning of time. You could draw different kind of ideas from those two phrases. Before the world began, that's a little bit more clear. Before God created the solar system, this planet. Before time began, you could lead you to a different type of a thought. The SD Bible commentary on that passage says before time's eternal, that is before the long ages of this earth's history. That's what it's saying. Uh, In his foreknowledge, God was was prepared to meet the tragedy and crisis of sin before it entered our world. Now, This idea of before time began, is there any inspired sources you can think of that has any measurement of time unrelated to this earth? Yes. Yeah, yeah, tell me.
1: The moment God creates something, that something is in time.
0: No, I agree with that, yeah.
1: And so it is independent of our earth.
0: I agree with that, too. I'm just trying to think, is there a reference where we have time passing somewhere that's not, not measured by time on this earth? Because when God created this earth, notice, that he created measures of time in creation week. Yes, Linda. Well,
2: I mean, the Bible says to God, the days is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day.
0: So okay, pause. The
2: distinction between God's perception of, of things and ours.
0: But, but a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. How do we measure a day?
1: After the creation.
0: R- relation to what planet? Measuring. How do we measure a year? Measuring. So again, is there any inspired reference that has measures of time that that isn't connected to this earth? In, in Genesis, the, the creation week, we actually have the establishment of sun and moon for a purpose. Sun was to measure the days, moon to measure the. Months, okay, and then and then we have the Sabbath, which was a measure of the weeks, and so we have this demarcation of time. I just find it interesting. I was thinking about this because the way it was used in education before. uh, Then, then will be opened before him the course of the great conflict that has its birth before time began and that ends only when time shall cease, only when time shall cease. So does that mean we won't be in time after sin is over? Yeah, so what does it mean when time shall cease? That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because it says in Isaiah... Uh, yeah, go ahead, comment. Time
2: will cease when you don't have an something
0: You measure time to study beginnings and end. There's eternity. Why would you keep track of your birth date in heaven or in the new earth? You know, I was about to say in Isaiah, they uh, Adventists like to bring up the text in Isaiah that in, in from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all creation will come and worship before Him. Um, that's a common talking about a time, a time in the future when. Time shall cease, but we're measuring from Sabbath to new moon. It's just an interesting thought. Yes.
2: You know, statement from everlasting to everlasting. And so there's a concept of eternity there without specific
0: milestones. And how does time work? And I think this is what Leon was getting to. Time is, is the uh, one event following another event. <laughs> A sequence uh, of, of linear existence in which one event follows another event. My words that I'm speaking follow the words preceding the ones I'm speaking. A linear existence, so to speak. And we operate in a linear existence, whether we measure it or don't. I just thought it was an interesting concept, and I don't think we fully have an appreciation of time and how time works. Yes? We
1: talk about before and after. That's the concept of time.
0: Exactly. Well said. Okay, just with that in mind, the point, though, is that before whatever we call time began, God had already conceived of a plan to save human humanity. So however we conceive of time, before that, <laughs> God had already conceived of a plan for our salvation. What was the plan that was conceived within the mind of God before time began? What was the plan?
2: Giving of himself.
0: Giving of himself. Any other thoughts? How would you describe it? The next paragraph in our lesson states, that's why Jesus didn't simply say, didn't, didn't say simply, that he was going to suffer many things and be killed and raised up on the third day, but that he must face these things. Given the nature of God, the sanctity of the law, and the reality of free will, his death was the only way that humanity could be saved from the penalty of transgression. I, 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 this statement can be understood in a couple of different ways. One way, which is quite accurate, but it can be understood another way that actually becomes very distorted. Let's talk about the accurate way first, this idea of saving, being saved from the penalty of transgression. How can that be understood accurately and, and truly?
2: You be cured of your terminal disease.
0: I like the way you say it, be cured of your terminal disease. So does the Bible teach there is a penalty for transgression? What is the penalty? Okay. And somebody can quote me a text on that? The wages of sin is death, uh, Romans 6.23. So anyway, the wages of sin is death. From where then, if, if, you, if you use that text, another Bible text, from where does that penalty arise or come? Intrinsic within the mouth. He says intrinsic from within the sin itself. Um, unremedied sin destroys the sinner. So James 1.15 says, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Or Galatians 6.8 says the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. So there's a penalty to sin, which is death, but that penalty arises from where? From the condition of sinfulness itself. Now the next question is, and it was absolutely true of course that Jesus' death was required to save us from sinfulness, which if unremedied results in death, but why will unremedied sin result in death? Why, why does that happen? What's the reason? Separation from the life giver. I like where you're going. Separation from the life giver. Well, how does the Bible describe sin? Sin is? Classic King James uh, version is sin is transgression of the law. More modern versions would say sin is? Lawlessness. Or out being without law or outside the law. What law? How do you understand the law? And this is the crux to the whole great controversy. It all boils down. How do you understand God's law? Do you understand God's law as God is creator? His laws are the protocols upon which reality are built. And therefore deviation from them takes you out of harmony from how he's built life. And thus, death happens. Or do you understand God's law functions no different than the way a sinful human being makes up law, a rule that we coercively enforce with threats of punishment. And if that's the case, then, then sin doesn't come out from the law. Sin doesn't come out from the sinful condition itself, the deviation from the law. And in, in, in this imposed law, sin comes out from the ruling authority who must execute the, the lawbreaker. And therefore, we need protection from the ruling authority. We need theology to, to do something to, to pay him back, to, to get him off our backs. This is the distortion. Um, Kathy brought this to me today. It's an evangelistic tool that people are hanging out, are handing out. And it has a, what is it, $1 million value currency. One million dollars is what it says on it. The United States of America, one million dollars. And you turn it over, uh, big letters in the top, one million, in God we trust on the back, and and it says the following. Here is the million dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die? Here's a quick test. Have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? Jesus said, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have done these things, God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart, and the Bible warns that one day God will punish you in a terrible place called hell. But God is not willing that any should perish. Sinners broke God's law, and Jesus paid their fine. This means that God can legally dismiss their case, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. Today, repent and trust Jesus, and God will give you eternal life as a free gift. Then read the Bible daily and obey it. God will never fail you. Now tell me what's wrong with this.
2: <laughs> the wrong
1: diagnosis. <laughs>
0: okay. The wrong diagnosis. Okay. How is the, what is the diagnostic problem according to this theory here it's legal yes
1: let's not make fun of this no because this is what we believed for many years yes
0: i believe this for many years this is i'm going to tell you my my belief on this however though this is an infection of thought this is an infection this is not in any way found in god's kingdom But it's something that many people have been taught from childhood. And where does it come from? It comes from the root of this infection. What is the root? Believing the wrong law concept. If you believe God's law functions like human law... Then you have this whole justice concept that breaking the law requires a just punishment. The just punishment, of course, is the infliction of, of the death penalty. Only God, who is the ruler and the perfect one, has the right to inflict that penalty. Thus God is the source of not only eternal judgment, but the eternal punishment that He inflicts upon people. Jesus, then, he loved us too much, he sent a son. and then Jesus took the punishment. He paid the fine. What was the fine? Execution by his father. And thus you'll find in Adventist literature that God executed Christ on the cross. And I'll say Adventist literature, more recent Ellen White never wrote such things. Ellen White wrote that at the cross Satan revealed himself as a murderer by taking the shedding the blood of the Son of God. You say it's completely different. But when you have the false law construct, then you build these legal paradigms that that are just missing reality. What is the reality? That the human condition is deviant from God's design. And God has been working through Christ to reconstruct humanity back in harmony with his design. That's what he's doing. But you heard in this thing that sinners broke God's law. Wait, uh, that God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous, at heart. And that the Bible warns that one day God will punish you in a terrible place called hell. Do you know that's the heart of most all of Christianity? Doesn't Doesn't matter denomination. In my next book that I was talking about this morning, I take this on directly and I show quotations from a wide range of Christian denominations that all have this idea embedded in it. And if you have this idea embedded in it that God, in his holiness and righteousness and justice, must lash out to punish sin, then what do you have to create? You have to create theologies that function like this. What's the function of the theology? It is to protect us or hide us from God. That's what the theology functionally does. And think of any of the things we've been taught that has as its function, what's it doing for me? It's shielding me, hiding me from the Father or paying the Father so he won't act against me.
1: It's not only wrong. Diagnosis, but wrong
0: remedy. It's the wrong diagnosis, right. So if, you, if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is usually wrong. The diagnosis is wrong, so the solution is wrong. This is why millions of Christians are trapped in addiction and violent cycles, and they have no, Paul says, they have a form of godliness, but they have no power. They have no power because they have the false remedy. They, they don't have victory in life. They don't have healing of heart and mind. They don't have restoration of Christ likeness within. Why? Because that's not the problem. The problem is a legal problem with God, and we must adjust his attitude towards us so he won't kill us rather than transforming us so we'll be ready to stand in his presence when he comes. That's the real gospel message. And so do you notice in this also, after it told you that God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering for all eternity, unless you accept the legal payment that Jesus made on your behalf, it tells you then, after all that, that you should trust him. Think that through. Somebody tells you, if you don't do what I say and don't obey perfectly... That they will torment you. They will torture you. They will chain you to a wall. And they will, they will burn pieces of flesh off of you. And then they'll let that heal and then burn you again. And let that heal and then burn you again for as long as you can take it before you die. Because they're humans. They can't keep you alive miraculously for eternity to do it to you. But they might do it to you for months and years. But they just want you to trust them. Just trust me. Yes? There's a certain sense in which our legal system will feel reasonably good about it because the guilty person pays the penalty. But in penal substitution, you have an innocent person. You have Christ being condemned by God the Father, which if that happened in our society, the murderer, say, in Chattanooga, someone stepped up and said, well, I'll die for
1: him. There'd be a huge outcry of unfairness. How is this fair? The person who committed the crime isn't dying. I mean, if it just stands on its own, there are major flaws with
0: penal substitution. It's not fair. Penal substitution is is a gross distortion of reality. It requires a suspension of much of one's thinking in order to hold to it. There's lots of contradictions. You pointed out one. But there is a way to understand substitution. Now, I want to understand there's a difference between penal substitution and substitution. They're not the same. Penal substitution is this legal, forensic substitution, and it's inherently flawed. But how about your child has... I don't know, you've raised them to live in harmony with the laws of health and they've gone out into wild living and started doing IV drugs and in that they've they've uh, uh, got a, um, a renal disease and they've actually taken some toxic substances that have killed their kidneys and their kidneys are now shutting down and they're going into renal failure. Could you donate a kidney to that child to save that child's life? Would you, if that was your child, donate a kidney to save their life? Okay, now in a certain sense, you're becoming a substitute, you're giving up a kidney that you shouldn't have to give up in order to save this person who's been destroying themselves, okay? So there's a substitution aspect there. They also could say you're paying a price. Would you be paying a high price to save your child? Is it a legal price? No. So we understand design law stuff, and why is the kidney necessary? Because the hospital administrator says we will not save your child unless you give up a kidney. We won't do it. We must have the legal price paid, and we, we require the price of a kidney. No, it's because the condition of the child itself requires that. Our condition was deviant from God's design, and we required what Christ achieved through his life, death, and resurrection. And what did he achieve? So what is it that causes us to be dead in our trespass and sin? The terminal condition. Our condition is terminal. Why? Two primary reasons that our condition is terminal. One, our minds are filled with lies about God, and lies, believe, break the circle of love and trust. So one thing Christ had to do, he had to reveal... Truth, on all levels, truth about himself, truth about God, truth about God's design law, truth about that exposed Satan as a liar and fraud, all the tr- truth had to be revealed. That's one. But, but even if truth is revealed, there's still something else that's not enough. What else are we, we held in slavery and bondage with? Our, our carnal nature. Our own nature is deviant from God's design. We live in fear and selfishness. We seek self first to protect self at all costs. Thus, we need a new heart and right spirit a new human character. Thus Christ came and became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He developed in his humanity a perfect human character. Thus, through Christ, we, we experience the truth that wins us to trust. And when we trust, we open the heart, and the Spirit takes all Christ achieved and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We actually get new motives, new ideas, new thoughts, new desires. We are reconciled in our own hearts and minds into unity with God again. It's transformational in the heart of the believer. This is not a legal process, it's a condition of being process. And we could never do that for ourselves. If, <clears throat> if you would like an Ellen White quote for that, Desire of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness. Why does the law require righteousness, by the way? Why? The way it's designed. The way it's designed would be like saying the law of respiration requires Breathing. Why does the law require, that's so restrictive. It's so, it's so controlling that we would be required to breathe. No, it's the way it's designed, okay? Law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. He did what we could never do. He actually fixed the human condition. And this is why I believe he was able to predict so confidently that he would die and on the third day rise again. Why? Because he partook partook of our terminal condition and he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And we're tempted, James 1, when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. And in Gethsemane you see his humanity struggles with human emotions that are tempting him in such intense fashion. He breaks out into a sweat of blood and the temptation, the human emotions are tempting him to do what? Save. Save self. But he says, "No one can take my life. I will give it or lay it down freely." Christ's death was not an, an act of, of uh, simply an act like the thieves, where some authority puts him on the cross and get, you know understand. Any point along Christ's road to death, he had the power to stop it. He was not powerless like the thieves. He could stop it. But if he acts and uses power to stop death from taking it, who, who, whose life does he save? It's an, this was the temptation. And thus, in his humanity, he's tempted in every way like we are, but he chooses with his humanity, with his human brain, he chooses to surrender self. Thus, at the cross, the infection of fear and selfishness is is eliminated. It's replaced with perfect self-sacrificial love, and the law of the Lord is perfect, bringing life or reviving the soul. And thus, he predicts, when I perfect humanity, I will rise again on the third day in a humanity that's free from this infection. And it says in, in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, that once he was made perfect, notice the language, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Well, wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. But Bible perfection is about maturity. And once he developed that perfect character by the exercise of his human brain in making choices, then he became the source of salvation. And this is so much deeper than this thing. And this thing that you read here that is commonly taught, it actually leads people to a religion that traps them in fear and insecurity. And they create all types of theologies to hide behind so when the Father looks at them, he'll never see their wickedness. And they have this false legal declaration that if you accept the blood of Jesus, God declares you to be righteous, quote, even though you're not. This is what's taught. Even though you're not. That's justification. You're set right legally in the accounting books of heaven even though you're not right. Any, and this is the contradiction. Well, then God's lying. He's declaring something to be so that's not actually... Well, he's declaring it based on the merits of Christ whose record stands in place of your record and so even though you're really not righteous, but he can legally declare you righteous. It's not really a lie. It's a shell game. If you actually read, just read what the text says uh, in Romans and Galatians. It says when Abraham trusted God he was recognized or declared or accounted to be righteous. When he when he did what? When he trusted God. So what is the natural state of the sinful human heart? Romans chapter 8. It's at enmity with God. It distrusts him. That's the natural state. We're born in a condition in which our hearts don't trust him automatically. Abraham's heart was changed from distrust to trust. Only after his heart was set right or changed... From distrust to trust, then God recognized hey he 's set right he 's justified he 's right with me again he 's righteous. Why is he recognized as being righteous because it 's heart, trust me again, and once we trust, then God fixes what 's broken inside that 's the big that 's the big step so, yes
2: I really like this concept
1: of uh, Christ had to develop his character on earth, and my question is um we're always told that Christ came sinless as the second Adam to show that Adam could have chosen not to sin. So I guess when I try to put it all together, are we? Did Adam was his character not developed completely? He was perfect. Did he just, or is it just simply he chose? He he lost trust at that.
0: No, this is a great question. <clears throat> And it goes to what God can create and what God cannot create. What God can achieve by the exercise of divine power and what God cannot achieve by the exercise of divine power. This is what this goes to. God can create sinless beings. He's done that. Angels in heaven, sinless. Adam and Eve in the garden, sinless. Sinless beings he can create. Character, however, he cannot create. Because character is, well, think about it this way. He can use power to create in an intelligent free being loyalty, devotion, love, trust. Can that be created? Now, you can create a robot that's programmed to act reliably. You can do that. But a free sentient being has to choose to love, has to choose to trust, has to choose to be loyal, has to choose to devote oneself. That's development of character. Okay? So in Eden, Adam, without any carnal nature, had the capacity to be confronted with the temptation at the tree, Weigh those things out, look at the evidences given, even go to to God in the cool of the day and have a conversation himself and come to the conclusion in his own strength that those were lies that the serpent was telling, and he chooses loyalty and devotion, and he settles his mind and character into this way of operating, he could have developed a perfect character. Adam was capable of doing that. However, since Adam sinned, we're born with such fear and such self centeredness that's so strong. We are incapable of doing that. Thus, Christ came to do that for us.
1: So that is why Christ had to die.
0: Yes, he had to die in order to reveal the truth and to overcome the infection of fear and selfishness and restore perfect love in the character of the human species. Mm -hmm. You see, prior to Christ's death on the cross, there was perfect divine character. There were still angels in heaven who had perfect angelic character. Mm -hmm. And if you believe their intelligence in other worlds that Hebrews alludes to in the first chapter of Hebrews, there were beings in other worlds who had perfect character of their order, but there was no human being with perfect character. And again, God can't use power to create that. It has to be chosen by the free will of the, of the species or the being. Thus, Christ came to exercise human will, to exercise loyalty and devotion to God, and to trust Him exclusively. And this is what Christ did for us. And then we can partake of that. So no longer I that live. Christ lives, then we, be, we become partakers of the divine nature through Christ and his achievements. Yes.
2: And I think another symptom of the infection is when so many churches say you can never be perfect. So why bother? Yes. And that's perfect for you.
0: You know, the great point. So let's unpack that. When you hear this term perfection, are you seeing it through the lens of imposed law? Or design law. Come back. It's always coming back to this question. Because under the, uh, under the, um, lens of the imposed law, perfection is always about behavior. About how well you perform. There's huge pressure on you to, to not dribble your soup on your clothing. To not slip and fall. To not drop a glass. To, to, to not make a mistake. To not slip up. There's huge pressure in your performance. But when you come back to design law, you understand that it's not about specific performance, it's about the motive of the heart when one is acting. Thus is the heart perfect in the sense of loving God and loving others more than self. Thus you find Rahab in the wall of Jericho, who is very, very childish in her understanding of reality, but somehow she recognizes the truth about God, the Holy Spirit sparks that, and she is willing to put her life on the line to sacrifice herself to protect God's people even though she lies. So the specific behavior is a lie, but her hard attitude is self-sacrificial. Thus she's, thus she's in the hall of faith in the New Testament. So a metaphor for that, you're out gardening in your garden, and you're pulling weeds in your tomato plants, and it's the spring, so the tomato plants are pretty small, and your three-year-old child comes up behind you and pulls up a tomato plant with a big smile and says, help mommy?
1: <laughs>
0: is this a disobedient or an obedient child? Maybe. Is this a rebellious or a, a loyal child? Do you beat? But but what about the performance? They they didn't pull up a weed. They pulled up a tomato plant. Do they get a spanking for this? Do they get punished? Are they? Is this sin on their part? No, there's no sin. Performance was not very good, but motive was perfect. Now you send out your adolescent, your fourteen year old, to weed weeds, and they only pull weeds. They don't they don't damage the tomato plants. But the entire time they're cursing you because they're not inside playing on their Game Boy. That's Phariseeism that's legalism. That's the Christianity today focusing on performance. You've got to do everything just right and there's this huge pressure but we hate God because he puts so much pressure on It makes us work all the time. It's
1: why I I a man after God.
0: This is the prodigal son. The prodigal who went away, terrible living, but their heart finally came back to love and trust. But the older brother who stayed home and did only what dad wanted, hated him, hated dad. That's the Pharisees. Yes. Now, as you mature, will behavior come in line and you get better and better? As the child grows up, will they come to the point they can only pull weeds and won't pull the tomato plants? Absolutely. But notice that's secondary to the heart attitude. Yes?
2: If this is a design or this is an inherent issue, then God is healing us no matter when it happens. So let's take um, um, Enoch. When he was walking with God, he was doing it by God's power. He was, he was walking with him by his gift. Yep. So why did he need Christ to die for him if he was receiving Christ's power to live a...
0: He wasn't just receiving Christ's char- power, he was receiving Christ's character that Christ developed. He was actually getting the Holy Spirit reproducing the character of Christ in him that Christ developed. How could that be? Well, now, now we are finite minds in linear existence trying to comprehend a God who created time and lives outside of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's think this through. This is is the analogy I use, and and it's limited because of our limited human comprehension, but let's say we have a time machine. And we have a time machine, and we can actually travel through time. We could go back and take some penicillin today, go back in time, and give it to somebody with an infection back in time, before penicillin, and that penicillin would still work for them, even though it's traveled through time to get there. But if penicillin's never developed anywhere in time, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in our day. It doesn't exist in the future. It doesn't exist. Can we then take it back through time and give it to somebody? No, we can't. So the Holy Spirit's applying what Christ achieved because God lives outside time. But if Christ never came and Christ never achieved his victory, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have anything to apply. So I think we we sometimes stumble when we restrict God to functioning in linear time like we do. I don't think God is stuck in linear time like we are. I think he exists outside of time. Now, some people can't get their mind around that, and they teach theologies where God doesn't know the future. He only knows possible futures because he doesn't live outside time. He's constrained in time like we are. I, I reject that. I think God created time like he created space, like he created matter, like he created energy, like he created life. He is not constrained to the flow of time except when, remember the Godhead entered time. And then when Jesus was on earth living as a human being, he was constrained to time. And that's why he said to his disciples, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son of Man. Only the Father knows. Why? Because at that time in his life, he's constrained in time. He's not seeing outside time anymore. But the Father knows. How's the Father know? Because he's not constrained in time. He's outside time. And so that's how I apply that. So he's still... Anybody saved, old or new, was only saved through the achievements of Christ applied via the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. It's a great question. If you, if you can think of a better explanation than that one, truth's unfolding, maybe a better one. That's the one I've got so far. So in Sunday's lesson, it says, imagine what it must have been like for Peter who had been with Jesus almost from the start, what must have gone through his mind as he witnessed one incredible event after another, the healings, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the multitude and the amazing teachings, the controlling of nature, the raising of the dead, the walking on the water and walking on the water together. What questions, such as, again, why did he allow John the Baptist such an ignominious death or end, must have bounced around inside him day after day seeing the things that no one in all of the history had ever seen? So if you could go back, if you were one of those 12, imagine for a moment, you're one of the 12, you're walking there, watching all the stuff, just like they described here, what questions would you have asked Jesus? As you've read the Bible and the history of the human race that would have transpired up to that point in human history, what questions would you have asked Jesus? Anybody?
2: They asked one that was really good, who then can be saved?
0: (laughs) Who then can be saved if?
2: If, because they all thought if you were God's side, you prospered. You were wealthy. You did well. And when Jesus turned that upside down and said, it's hard for a rich man to be saved, all of a sudden they're like, well, those are the people I thought were going to be saved. Who then can be saved? They can.
0: Other questions. What questions would you ask? And so and the answer was, who can be saved? Anyone who trusts in Jesus. Anyone who trusts the Father. Anyone who accepts what Jesus has come to reveal and do. Anyone. Rich or poor, yes.
1: You no. Know. I always thought that I would have many questions if I meet Christ face to face. <laughs> but then there's a metaphor I will tell you, and that is husband and wife, were going to make a list between them separately, why they love each other. And the wife wrote pages and pages Telling all the good things About the husband And the husband When he turned in It was a blank paper He says I cannot answer that There is no reason Why I should love you And so Why does God love me? There are no reasons It is his nature And so love Takes care of all the lists That we could come up with
0: and our reason for loving him is because he first loved us?
1: That's right.
0: Mm-hmm. So, any questions? Anybody have any questions? How about, why did you use a serpent to represent yourself to the children of Israel? You ever wonder that? Why would you put yourself up on a, on a brass pole as a brass serpent? Anybody ever thought that one through? Why, why that?
2: That's so they were dealing
0: with, though. Yeah, they were dealing with, with serpents and scorpions. Could have used a scorpion. Why, why, why a serpent rather than a scorpion?
1: The the enemy he was fighting
0: against. It's the enemy he's fighting against? Right. That was the counterpart to him.
1: He became sin for us. He became like Satan, the serpent.
0: Okay, I like where you're going with this. Remember, when you look at Old Testament stuff, particularly the nation of Israel, Israel is an acting troupe. It's theater. And when you have these major themes happening, it's almost always because it's an object lesson of some sort. It's not just happening for them, there's a built in object lesson teaching a larger, great, great controversy reality going on. And so what are the serpents coming in and biting? What 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 was what why were first off, why were they coming in and biting? <laughs> because the children of Israel are complaining, which means God sent serpents in, He used his power to make them go in and bite them, or God did something else. Yeah. He, would, so God had been protecting them. remember they're out in a part of the of the earth that is infested with scorpions and snakes but up to that point nobody had been bit not one snake bite not one scorpion sting in the world which is infested that's quite amazing a million people or more not one bite how's that possible because God had been using power to restrain or hold at bay the forces of evil now, we know in Scripture, Satan is represented as a serpent. When they begin to rebel and say, we, we're tired of this, we don't want to live. God, we want to, they're separating themselves from God, so God withdraws a restraining hand. And what naturally happens, what's the natural consequence when, God, when we separate ourselves from God? We experience the sting and the bite of the evil one. And so the sting and the bite of the evil one comes in, and the sting and the bite of sin, what is sin? The wages of sin is so they're now, they're now having a sting and a bite that's going to result in their dying. Now what's necessary for their salvation? And this is a metaphor. The whole human race has been bitten by the serpent. We're all dead in trespass and sin. We're dying in our terminal condition. What is necessary for our salvation? What did they need to be saved at that point? What, what, what did they have to do? They had to trust, which was manifested by an action. What was the action? They simply had to look. Do you notice they didn't have to bring an offering? No payment was made. No legal intercession was done. They had to trust, and the trust was manifested by them looking to the brass serpent. Now, why the brass serpent? Because he who knew no sin was made sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So in this lesson, God is trying to teach them that the plan of salvation is a matter of restored trust in me. And if you store trust in me, then my son will take this condition and destroy the condition and provide you life. So this is out of um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 430. It says, The lifting up of the brazen serpent was to teach Israel an important lesson. They could not save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison in their wounds. God alone was able to heal them. Yet they were required to show their faith in the provision which he had made. They must look in order to live. It was their faith that was acceptable with God, and by looking upon the serpent, their faith was shown. They knew that there was no virtue in the serpent itself, but it was a symbol of Christ, and the necessity of faith in his merits was thus presented to their minds. Before this, many had brought their offerings to God and had felt that in so doing, they made ample atonement for their sins. See, this idea, payment was me. I'm bringing an offering, my best, I'm slaying it. The blood of this animal is, is enough to, to cover for my sin and atone for my sin. That's what they're thinking. They did not rely upon the Redeemer to come, of whom these offerings were only a type. The Lord would now teach them that their sacrifices in themselves had no more power or virtue than the serpent of brass, but were like that to lead their minds to Christ, the great sin offering. And I can't tell you how many Christians, I read a quote last week, heard on the uh, recent radio, where they were explaining the Old Testament sacrifices on Christian radio, and they explained that in Old Testament times, these theologians, I won't tell you where they're from, it's not it's just a particular evangelical denomination, but they were explaining that in Old Testament times, people were saved by the blood of the sacrificial animal, that that was necessary, and without that blood, they could not be saved. It's not true. Many people were saved without ever shedding that blood. Doing sacrifices. Even look at the seventy years of captivity. We don't have any record of Daniel and the three worthies doing sacrifices. The temple was destroyed. Yet they were saved. It wasn't necessary. It was a theater. It was simply symbolic, designed to bring their minds to the reality where their minds could be cleansed. Do you think there were many questions answered that are not recorded in Scripture? That the disciples asked many questions like this, and Jesus gave them the answers, not in Scripture. John 21, 25 says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Or Revelation 10, 4. When the seven thunders spoke, I started to write it all down, but a voice out of heaven stopped me saying, Seal with silence the seven thunders. Don't write a word. So are there revelations that some humans might get, some insight, some wisdom, some truths that they might get answers to that have not been recorded in Scripture? Yeah, God's infinite; we're finite. So, does that mean that it's possible some of us could get answers to, to eternal truths that aren't actually recorded anywhere else? Is that possible? I think it is possible.
1: The Holy Spirit is still working.
0: So Peter answers, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." What, what does he mean? "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." What's it mean when he answers this? The
2: Anointed One.
0: The anointed one. The anointed one, meaning anointed? The one that they had been looking for for ages. The Messiah, the, 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 Messiah the, the Savior.
1: Except the word Messiah is not limited to Christ.
0: Yeah, who else was called that?
1: Hundreds of people in the Old Testament. Every high priest was anointed. He was Messiah.
0: They were all anointed.
1: He was a Messiah. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was a Messiah.
0: So anyone, Bible. yes, no, that's right. And we can see again back in the theater, we can see particularly how the high priest was representative of, they, 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 that was not necessarily they were the Messiah, but they were the stand-in theatrical representation of the Messiah, like the lamb was the stand-in theatrical representation of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and so forth. But some of those were more, Temporal Messiahs like Cyrus. He was delivering the people and setting them free again. So there is an aspect of deliverer there that actually played out in real time. Jesus um, responds, Matthew sixteen, seventeen through twenty to Peter. And I'm going to read to you from the NIV, and then I'm going to read to you the same passage from the remedy. Tell me which one do you think more accurately or uh, depicts what's being said here. Not necessarily translate it, but the meaning. It says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. And here's the same from the remedy. Jesus smiled and said, Well done, Simon, son of Jonah. You did not gain this truth from humans, but from my Father in heaven. And though you are Peter, your name meaning small stone, it is on the solid rock of the Son of Man that I will build my church, and hell's barricade of selfishness and lies will not stop it. I will give you the Spirit, empowering you with truth and love, which are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind to truth and love on earth will bound to truth and love on heaven. And whatever you loose from fear and selfishness on earth will be loosed from fear and selfishness in heaven. Then Jesus instructed the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah because his time was not yet. Thoughts? Any, any comments? Yeah.
1: It's interesting that at Jesus' birth, he was <clears throat> not christened as the Messiah. He was christened as a savior. The whole book of, Jew, of Judges, every leader is called a savior, not the Messiah. There were many that were chosen uh, to lead the nation of Israel, but they were not anointed. But they were saviors. And Jesus became savior when he gave him the name, God saves, Jesus He acquired the name uh, Messiah. When God says, you are my son, I have chosen you.
0: You I am well pleased. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What do you think of this idea that when Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, it was referring to Peter? Is that a common idea in the world? What what is what what would undermine that as being a reliable interpretation of this passage? Would, 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 would we be able to use Peter's own testimony? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 4, 8 through 10, Peter, this is what it says, this is NIV, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, answered them, leaders of the people of and elders, if we are being questioned today about the good deed done to the lame man and how he was healed, then you should all know, and all the people of Israel should know, that this man stands here before you completely well through the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Jesus is the one of whom the Scripture says, the stone that you, the builders, despise turned out to be the most important of all. Or, in the book of Peter, 1 Peter 2 4 through 8, this is a good news translation. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones and let yourself be used in building the spiritual temple, where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. And another scripture says, this is the stone that will make people stumble, the rock that will make them fall. They stumbled because they did not believe in the word, such, as God's, such was God's will for them. Thoughts about this. Does Peter, his own testimony, make it clear that the stone was Jesus Christ? Yeah, what, what goes on then that people misperceive this and take this one passage disconnected from other scripture that makes it clear that Jesus is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built and the apostles are the foundation. And they use this one passage to to, to, and then they use this passage about the keys of the kingdom and what you bind on earth and bound in heaven. And there we have this authoritarian power to determine who's saved and who's lost based on the, based on the power of the, of the institutional system. Yes.
2: I was just going to say that the, the combination of that statement about the stone and the foundation of the church and his subsequent immediate co- uh, discussion of what you are buying on earth will have been bound on in heaven already is confused. It's a confusing statement.
0: Because what makes it confused? I'm going to uh, suggest what makes it confused is because people read it through imposed law constructs. They breed it through this, this this construct of we have authority. The authority is um, declared authority of a position, like the the president of the United States becomes sworn into office. Now he has authority. Where's that authority originating from? A declared position. It's not inherent. It, the system gives this it's, it's an imposed law construct. And this is how the church is viewed. Now the church, the uh, it, it, the church functions under this imperial law construct. We have authority. Therefore, we declare. We can absolve people of sin, we can move people from heaven to hell or from hell to purgatory and purgatory to heaven, and we can do this because we can just declare it by the edicts that we give and we can absolve sin and so forth. Why? Because they're operating in the same way that a judicial system and you present yourself before the judge here and you've been accused of a crime, the judge has the authority to vacate the the charges. In a declaration. But if you come into this courtroom with endocarditis for using IV heroin and your heart is infected and you're dying, the judge cannot vacate that. I vacate your endocarditis. (laughs) Can't do it. Design law cannot be handled this way. This only works when we still operate under this imperial law construct that God's law functions no different than ours. When you come back to design law, though, then you understand that, how, well, how, how can the church bind things on earth that become bound in heaven and lose things on earth that becomes, and I, I think, you know, I'm suggesting the idea because the church brings the truth, which sets people's minds free and opens their heart so the spirit comes in and they are bound to love, bound to love and trust through the truth. And when you bind people in loving, trusting, relationship with God on earth, they remain bound in heaven. And when you free people from fear and selfishness on earth through the truth and the love of God that you reveal to them and you share with them, then their hearts are loosened on earth and they remain loosed in heaven. It's design law stuff. And it's the only way for me that it makes sense. Any, any other thoughts? Anybody have an idea that makes more sense? Yeah.
1: I want to go back to Peter, if I may. Sure. Uh, I was in Poland when the Pope, the Polish Pope, was visiting. He spoke to all the dignitaries of the Polish church, Roman Catholic church. And he made a statement. This is the church that is built upon Jesus Christ and him alone. There was absolute silence. And then one of the leaders of the Polish church, Roman Catholic church, said, And on your holiness too. Notice the Pope had a better grasp of the foundation of the church than some of his servants. But he didn't correct him, did he?
0: Well, you know what, and why do they do this? I'm going to tell you because they're embedded into a law construct and they want to be able to go to somebody and and have the, the emotional experience of being declared right. They want to be able to go to confessional, take the Mass, feel like they've done something, and now they have security. I'm safe. The, the, the Pope has, has told me. The p- priest, the, the prelate, somebody has told me I'm cleansed, I'm right with God, I've done the right things, I'm good. They want security. They want peace there. Yes, yeah, way in the back.
1: Um, I can't put my fingers on it right now, but someplace Ellen White clarifies this bound on earth, bound in heaven business by stating that if it's done in accordance
0: was God's law. And what law is that? Law of love. There you go. Yep. And when we're deviant from God's law, it severs us. That's exactly right. Okay. So jump to Wednesday's lesson real quick. It's about the transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appear with him. And let's see, in the second paragraph, it says, How fascinating that Jesus, Son of God, in his humanity, had the need to comfort, of comfort and encouragement from these men, who themselves knew their own share of suffering and discouragement. Luke records that they spoke to him about his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's King James' language. It's very weird language, isn't it? just spoke to him about his decease, uh, but which he was about to accomplish. And so you look it up in another version. What do you think they were actually discussing? You don't have to look it up. What do you think... What do you think they were going to discuss? Death. His, death. his death. His upcoming mission, the mission he came to earth to complete that he's about to go through in this weekend. They're discussing this. So why do you think of all the beings in the entire universe that God could have selected to come and encourage Jesus right before the crucifixion weekend, why do you think Moses and Elijah were selected? There's several reasons. Yes. Moses had already died, so that would be encouragement to somebody who had died and rose again. And elijah went to heaven in a fiery chariot, which implies the ascension and so that would be encouraging jesus you're going to make it death isn't so bad Moses says i did it once okay so here's here is a great uh uh one of the reasons and this is this is often one of the one of the reasons presented and it's a it's a miniature of the of the um, you know, Christ coming in glory at the end of time with Moses representing those who are resurrected of the righteous and Elijah res- representing those who are translated at the end. So it's, a, it's an evidence of his victory. Okay, And so I, I like where you're going with that and we can expand on that even further. Both of these as human beings would remind Jesus of what he will achieve not just for the two of them, but for all that those two represent for him, the millions of lives that will be saved, he's being reminded of. This isn't, this isn't meaningless. You will achieve something. Secondly, I think they remind him that he wins because of what I said earlier, that if he hadn't won this coming weekend, now he's in time. So his, his 33 years, he's, he's not accessing out-of-time knowledge anymore. He's in time. But this reminds him, if I would have failed, they wouldn't be here to encourage me right now. So I think he has some sense of confidence. It gives him confidence that as hard as it's going to get, he, he can win this. He can win this. He's not going to lose. Um, and why, why Elijah, though, than Enoch, if we're going to have somebody represent a translated being? Because Enoch could have been a translated being and represent that same representation, but I think there's a reason, Elijah. And, and that has to go, did both Moses and Elijah have confrontations with satanic forces on earth? Did both Moses and Elijah stand up to satanic forces for the benefit of the people? So Jesus is about to go through the same. He's going to stand up to the the powers of evil for the purpose of delivering the people. And did both Moses and Elijah at some point get overwhelmed with their own emotions and stumble? They were tripped up by their own feelings. Moses with frustration and irritation and anger. Elijah with fear and discouragement. But their own feelings both tripped them up. So do you think they're both there to say to him, hey, we know how strong these feelings are going to get. We both slipped. We were wrong. No matter how bad the emotions get, no matter how strong the temptations of your feelings become, trust the Father. 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 Do you think they were there to share from their own experiences that they can't trust their feelings? Emotions lie. Emotions lie. Yes, Anthemar? I love the thing,
2: like, what you're saying, but uh, sidebar question. How do you think that the disciples knew who those men were? How did they know that was Moses and Elijah?
0: An interesting question. Any thoughts on that? Monogram jerseys. <laughs> Monogram jerseys. They were wearing their numbers. <laughs> Divine insight. Divine insight. How did, how, did, how did
2: Peter know that Christ was was truly the Messiah?
0: So, divine insight. I, I think, though, that, that there could be some of the way they dressed. I think they probably w- were dressed in something that was familiar, perhaps. But they were both shining. They are all shining bright light.
2: I think you hear the way they were dressed each other.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe Jesus called them by name.
2: Was, there, was, was, Elijah, was it Elisha that was bald? Elisha was
0: bald. Elisha was bald. Okay, well, that would that? Yeah, so... <laughs> So, so um, and, and, and that's a defect, that's a genetic defect, so we won't have baldness in heaven, okay? <laughs> um, but but do, you think, do you think Jesus might have said out loud, Moses, Elijah, thank you for coming? Could he, could he have said that? Yeah. My friends, Moses, my friend Elijah, yeah. Maybe they, that was one of the questions they asked him later. Jesus, who, who were those two? Well, they said in real time. Right after it was over, let's build three monuments, one for Moses, one for you, and one for Elijah. So it wasn't too long that they they were really pretty quickly aware as soon as it was over. Yes?
1: Because of the discussion they were having. Maybe they heard what they were saying to encourage Jesus.
0: Yeah. Something happened there that that made that self-evident, I think. We're not told, though. It's not recorded what was said. Um, Thursday's lesson, and I I guess I'll leave you with these thoughts. It's about... um, it's about uh, the, the, the uh, religious leaders asking Peter if Jesus pays the temple tax. And Peter says, of course. Now, what was the problem with saying of course? Everybody know the problem? Prophets and and uh, the anybody representing the church of the day, Levites and so forth, they were sustained by the temple. They didn't pay tax to the temple. And so saying he pays the temple tax was a confirmation in their mind that he wasn't a spokesperson for God. He wasn't representing God's mission. That's what it would be interpreted as. Now, there was a misrepresentation. How did Jesus handle it once Peter impulsively said yes, because he, he thought he was going to somehow get criticized for not doing what he's supposed to. My, no, but he didn't, he didn't think through. He made a mistake in his judgment. He didn't, he didn't see with discernment what the real question was trying to do. And how did Jesus handle it? A miracle. Did Jesus make an issue? I'm not required to pay the temple tax and I'm not going to pay it. Did he make an issue of it? Why didn't he make an issue? He could have. Why didn't he? He didn't. Because it would have derailed. It was, this is a side issue, a minor issue. It would have derailed into a theological technicality where they, they lose sight of what's really important, which is the revelation of God's character in Christ Jesus. So how does he handle it? He handles it in a way that makes it just fade into silence. How does he, how does he do that? One, he doesn't make an argument of it. He tells Peter to go out and catch a fish. The first fish he catches, look in its mouth, and there's the temple tax, and go pay it. Okay. Now, number one, they can't make an issue that you haven't paid it. Number two, if they do make an issue that you paid it, then they have to bring to light the miracle that he performed to do it, and that validates him as being something different than everyone else, so they're not going to bring it up. (laughs) So it fades into silence, and they focus back on the mission, that if you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He handled it brilliantly as he always does. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who constructed all reality to operate in harmony with your nature. And in that reality, you have created us as free, sentient beings who you long to restore in us your design, your character, your methods that we will love you and trust you and be loyal to you and devoted to you. And Lord, we don't have the strength and our own power to fix the brokenness in us. But we don't have to because you sent Christ to fix what's broken. And we now ask you that you will take and pour the Spirit out, who will take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us, that our thoughts will come into harmony with your thoughts, our desires we merge with your desires. It's no longer I that live, but you live in me, Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.